0: Thanks, Mark. And so I want to welcome you as well this morning. Thanks so much for being here. And uh, I know that some of you are second service people and you came because you couldn't wait to get to your Super Bowl activities, right? Uh, The things like... Really? You're watching that game? Oh, gosh. Yeah. So, okay. So, just glad that you're here. If you're watching online, I'm really glad that you're here. I want to encourage you, if you're watching online or through Facebook Live, that you would take an opportunity to fill out the connection card and let us know. But really, we want to invite you to come here and just engage with us right here in this site. It'd be a wonderful thing to do. So, we're in this series, and we're calling Why We Do That. And this series is about What we do when we gather together, what it's about as followers of Jesus, how we're trying to grow, and how we're trying to influence our world in a positive way. And it all begins with experiencing intimacy, intimacy with God, intimacy with Jesus, with Holy Spirit, and with others. It begins with that kind of desire that we would all have to get to know him better. And we're talking about how to do that, and that's what we do. So yesterday morning, I was reading a verse uh, that I have uh, uh, taped to my shower, and so I uh, look at this verse quite often, and uh, the reason I have it there is because I need it. And so uh, you might want to write this reference down, so some of you might want to have this verse close to you as well. Uh, but it's Psalm 16:8, uh, and it says this: It says, "I have set the Lord always before me." And so uh, right there's a challenge for me. I don't know about any, any of you, but it 's a challenge. I have set the Lord always before me, and so I came out of the shower later, and I was talking to Cam, and I said, how in the heck do you do that? You know, how do you set the Lord always before you? How do you make sure that you focus on him, that you know him, that you're thinking about him, that he is in your, you know, in your conscious and your subconscious thoughts, in your spirit? And, and you know, I was going a little bit further, it, it, then it says this next phrase, it says, I will not be shaken because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. And then it said this, and this is the part also that I really got a lot of meaning from. It says, therefore, my heart is glad, so glad, my whole being rejoices. I kind of looked at that like Tigger, you know, I'm just, I'm just, whole being just rejoices. You can't hold me down. And it says, my flesh also dwells secure, so I can know security. But the real idea comes back to that first phrase, I have set the Lord always before me. Well, that's what this series is about. say, why we do that? Everything we do is to help us to learn to set the Lord always before us, to learn to see him to know him, to embrace him, to walk with him, to be able to understand why he does the things he, do, he does, and then how we can engage with him. So I'm going to invite everyone to grab your message notes out of your program. They look like this. They're going to be really helpful if you want to follow along today. All the Bible verses we'll use will be here, as well as just some ideas that you can write down. Uh, you can write down 16, 8, and 9, Psalm 16, 8, and 9 there. Maybe that would help you. Also, if you have your Bible, you can open it to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. That's where we're going to be today is 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And I want to encourage you, if you don't own a Bible, I want to give you one. So if you'll stop out at the shelf right out there outside those doors, there's some Bibles there, you take one, and that would be our gift to you. So in this series, we're talking about how can we take steps, how can we engage, how can we learn to keep the Lord always before us so that we can have joy in our hearts, our whole being will be full of rejoicing, and that we can also be able to have security have security in him. And so that's what we're doing as we go along here. Our theme verse there, 2 Peter 1.3, and it says this, by his divine power, God has given us everything. On your notes, underline that, everything we need for living a godly life. So that means that he's given me everything I need to keep him always before me. So my goal is to listen to him, to follow him about what he says. He says, we have received all this by coming to know him. That's the goal of the series that we'll have intimacy with him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and grace. So that's all we're doing this series is trying to increase our intimacy with God. Show us how that we would increase our intimacy with God and with others. And I put the key idea there. The key idea is this. We do what we do so that we become who God made us to be. So why do we do that? We do what we do so that we can become who God made us to be, so that we can know Him and that we can become? Then the Bible would teach us in Romans eight twenty nine that we would become like His Son, Jesus Christ. So today we're going to talk about the joy that we can experience when we give generously. Now, for many people, when they come to church and they hear that we're talking about money, they admit, like some people aren't here today because I announced it last week. Okay, just be honest. Uh, we're going to do that. It's just because it's a little awkward. It gets a little hot. It gets, you know, because somehow people think that it's my job to get your money out of your pocket. That's not my job. Okay. Just so you know, this is not between me and you today. This is between you and God and what he would want to say to you. And I'm just going to describe what it looks like to live a generous life. But really it begins back with this idea. It begins with intimacy with God. If I'm going to have intimacy with him, then I'm going to be able to learn what it means to be a generous person. I'll just say it this way. The Bible says that there can be no significant spiritual growth in your life unless you put your money and what you think about your money into God's hands. That's what the Bible teaches. There can be no significant spiritual growth over the long haul unless you put your money and then what you think about your money... "...into his hands." So generosity is a huge deal in our culture right now. So not just about you know, churches talking about it, but it's a huge deal in culture overall. Study after study is building a case uh, for what the Bible actually teaches, that generosity is the pathway to happiness. That's just so counter-intu- counterintuitive, right? That generosity is the pathway to happiness. Our instinct is to believe the commercials, especially the ones that we're gonna watch in the Super Bowl this afternoon, which is why many of you watch that. And the commercials say this if you have more, you're happy. If you have more, you're happy. But in reality, researchers have discovered that the opposite is true. They've discovered that the more you give away, the more contentment that you can experience, and the more contentment you can have, and then the more joyful. And as we're going to look at it in a little bit, cheerful, and I'll say happy you can be. So I'm just going to give you three observations about generosity that kind of help us to see some of the benefits of being generous in case we need that. So three observations. The first one is this. Giving generously to God increases my joy. It increases my joy. It increases my happiness that we just talked about. It increases my contentment. My joy. Now, University of Notre Dame... Uh, about every university you go to is, done, done, uh, is doing generosity studies right now. Harvard has done great study on generosity. I'm going to quote someone from UC Davis at the end of the talk today. And then from somebody from Notre Dame right here says, the University of Notre Dame researchers have discovered this. They discovered that generous people are happier, healthier, and less depressed. Not only that, but generous people have lower blood pressure, reduced stress and longer lifespans. Secular university saying this is what their research shows. But not only that, generous people have better moods, better marriages, and this is what some of us really want, better friends. As we're generous, that all the ways that generosity increases my joy and my happiness and my contentment, and that's just what the Bible teaches. The Bible goes right along with this whole thing. A generous life leads to a richer life. Second idea is this. Giving generously to God refreshes my soul. Refreshes my soul. Refreshes my spirit. And the way Reason is doing that is because as I give, I'm drawing my heart closer to God. My heart is being drawn closer to God. So um, how many of you want to sign up? You want a refreshed soul? That would be something you want. I think all of us would like to have that refreshment. Here's what Proverbs 11.25 says. It says, a generous person will prosper... Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Did you hear that? A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others by being generous will be refreshed themselves. I didn't put this on your notes, but you want to write it down. The reference is Proverbs 22.9. Proverbs 22.9 says this, The generous will themselves be blessed. Those who are generous will find that the blessings come. And it's not prosperity gospel blessings, the kind of prosperity gospel blessings that would say that, uh, that if you're generous, that God owes you and he's going to you, make you healthy, wealthy, and wise in, in return. No, there's a lot of benefits that can come when our, from our generosity as we give ourselves and give, uh, give our things away. Generosity leads to a richer life. It, it just helps me as I'm generous to develop a deep sense of happiness and joy in my soul that's not based upon the constant drive to have more and more. In fact, it's talking about a fact of life. You get what you give. You get what you give. That's the way it's the truth of life. In other words, we're going to read in a moment from some verses in 2 Corinthians 9, you reap what you sow. So you see, God doesn't bless us to hoard those blessings doesn't bless us to do that. He blesses us so that we can use the resources he's given us in a positive way to impact this world. Generosity makes me happier. It brings me joy. It refreshes my soul. It blesses me spiritually as I learn from trusting him and walking with him to trust him with all that I have. And then number three, giving gently to to God expands my influence. It expands my influence. Now I'm going to camp out here for just a little bit, um, and so you just want to stay on this side of your notes because there's something that I say that might resonate with you um, And so but i'm going to read this Verse from psalm 112 9 and it's going to be in the verses from 2 corinthians 9 We're going to read a little bit um, But this is what it says from psalm 112 9 They share freely and give generously to those who are in need Their good deeds will be remembered and they will have influence and honor. Would you underline that influence and honor? influence and honor now, I'm going to camp out here for just a moment. Sociologists tell us that we live in a post-Christian culture. That we live in a post-Christian society. And sociologists don't have to be the ones that tell us this. All you have to do is watch the news. All you have to do is watch the news. People aren't predisposed... In our culture right now, to think very highly of Christians. They're just not predisposed to think very highly of Christians. We live in a day when Christians aren't looked upon with favor by those who aren't Christians. And honestly, sometimes I don't blame them. I just don't blame them. In fact, culture despises anyone who says they're a Christian. Because they believe, this is the message, you're going to hear it. If you've not heard it yet, you're going to see it. If you've not seen it yet, they believe that Christians are haters. They believe that Christians are politically motivated. They believe that Christians have disregard for the environment. They believe that Christians are racist. They believe that Christians are homophobes. And the list could go on and on. And I don't know about you, but it's depressing when you see how culture views Christianity. So what's the answer? What's the answer? Well, the answer, I believe, is found in us being generous. So in my research for today's message, and the reason I'm going to camp out here for a little bit, I came across a writing by Tim Keller. He used to be the pastor of a church in New York City, and he's a speaker and church planter, written tons of books. But I came across a writing that he had done as he was talking about this, and he was talking about uh, a document that uh, has been discovered by archaeologists that from the 2nd century A.D. So the 2nd century A.D., so two, you know 150 years after Jesus, something like that. And so it's called the Epistle of, I'll say it right, the Epistle of Diognetus, there we go, I knew I'd get it out, Diognetus. That's what it's called. And so Diognetus wrote an epistle to a friend of his, and he was writing to that friend to say, I don't get it, but here's what's happening. Christianity is spreading like wildfire in our culture. And from what I can see, it's spreading like wildfire in our culture from these four reasons. And he listed four reasons. Diognetus made four characteristics that exhibited the early Christians that made them attractive, that made their, in, their influence impactful. So I'm going to list them. And you're going to be amazed when you hear how Christians influenced a non-Christian world where everything was against them. There was no power in the Christian house. There was no political influence in the Christian house. There was no resource. It just goes on. There was nothing except the way they treated one another and the way they treated others. There's four things. You might want to write these down. The first one was a complete absence of racism, a complete absence of racism, so these early Christians were coming to know Jesus from all kinds of cultures, all kinds of different countries, all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different races. And what they knew is they knew that at the foot of the cross that they were all equal. And so they were willing to put aside their uh, cultural differences so that they could come together and be unified into one. And so what they realized is, as they were living on this this idea is that Christianity gives you a higher authority than your tradition or race. So the first thing is they gave up their cultural ideals that would bind them to one race. And so they were not racist. Second is this, they had a high view of human life, a high view of human life. So the Christians would stand up against the view of the day Where infants were killed. Literally taken outside the walls of the city. Thrown on a garbage heap. Or thrown into the river. If or they were the wrong gender. Or that somehow they were going to inconvenience the family. Christians would go to the garbage dumps. And they would look for babies that had been thrown away. So that they could take them home and raise them. And keep them. And to bring them to life. Third, they stood for a biblical sex ethic of purity. A biblical sex ethic of purity. Believing that God made a man and a woman by design to be different and that sex was designed by God to be a gift between a man and a woman who would commit themselves to one another for life. This is totally against what their culture stood for. Sexual freedom totally was what was taught in that culture. And then number four, and this is the one I want to get to, they were amazingly generous, even at their own risk, at the risk of their own peril. It says that they shared their table with everyone who had need. They shared their table with everyone who had need. They took care of the widows. They took care of the sick. They took care of the slaves. These are all the, all the, uh, the people that would be um, thrown away and they would be put aside. This Christians would step up and say, we'll take care of the widows. We'll take care of the special needs people. We'll take care of those who are hurting. We'll take care of those who are homeless. We'll take care of those who have need. We'll take care of the slaves, We're the ones who are coming out of slavery. We'll take care of them. They took care of them. See, the Christians, what they did is they learned to be contented with the simplicity of what they had. So that they could meet the needs of people around them. That's what the Christians did. They had nothing, and yet they became known for their generosity as they gave to others. So, those were the values that the Christians stood by, that Diognetus is writing about to his friend to say, here's why Christianity is exploding in a non Christian world where everything is against Christians. They've given up racism. They have a high value of life. They have a strong sexual ethic. And they're generous. And they give themselves away to those who have need. And, folks, I'll just say it this way. When I read that, I thought, that's how, that's it. That's exactly what we can do. We don't have to be political. We don't have to be judgmental. We don't have to be fanatical. But we can influence our world. When we choose to live in the same way that the early Christians lived in their world, and Christianity exploded, wouldn't it be awesome to see that? Because we chose to live like them in all the ways that we can. So one of the ways was being generous, and so that's what I want to talk about for the next few minutes. So you turn your notes over to the back side. Let's talk about how can we give generously to God. We're going to have communion in just a second, and as we move to there, I just want to lead us up to communion by talking about how what God calls us to in the area of generosity. So we want to influence our world, and we would want to sign up for this, because as we're generous, then people see Jesus in the way we live. So in case you don't know this, um, chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians are all about giving. So if you want to know about giving, go read chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. Both chapters talk a lot about giving. And it's a lot of repetition as Paul writes these letters, uh, these verses. But he's talking about really the idea of being generous. So I'm going to give you three things that he says in the nine verses, ten verses we're going to look at today. From 2 Corinthians 9. Three things. If I'm going to be generous, the first thing I have to do is I have to give thoughtfully. I have to give thoughtfully. So, 2 Corinthians 9 says this, verse 6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. And this is the key phrase each of you, each of you, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. In other words, he's saying you must give thoughtfully, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a what? Cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. Not someone who gives reluctantly or under compulsion. So see, our culture tells us a lie. And the lie is is that the more we give away, the less we're going to have. That's actually a lie. That's a lie. These verses tell us that's not true in God's economy. God's economy says that the more generous you are, the more generous you are, the more happy and satisfied you'll become. So what we need to do when it comes to giving generously is we need to be thoughtful. We need to be, account for our giving. We need to come up with a standard. We need to come up with a reasonable amount or a reasonable designation that we're going to make and not just give willy-nilly. How are we feeling in the moment? So I just ask you, according if you were to look at your giving, you know, we say not giving statements that came out about a week ago. When yours came to your house, would you say by looking at your giving statement that you gave abundantly or you gave sparingly? What would yours say? Do you give sparingly or do you give with open, generous hands? So Paul says this he says, hey, here's the deal. It's just about sowing and reaping. And if you sow two corn seeds, you're going to get two corn plants. But if you sow thousands of corn seeds, you're going to get how many corn plants? Thousands. That's just the law of the harvest. That's the way it's going to work. Therefore, when you give, think about that. Think about that. And give according to the crop that you want to harvest. Generous giving to God results in generous giving from God. That's what Paul's saying here. So we need to pray and ask, God, how much do you want me to give? I I need to know. God, show me. What would be the standard for my life, for my family, that then I can give to you not out of reason, but out of revelation? And I've thoughtfully thought about that, and this is what I'm going to give. So listen to this. If you're not having to make thoughtful choices to do without something some of the things you want, then you're probably not giving generously. If you're not having to wrestle, wrestle between the things you want and the way that God's called you to live, then you're probably not giving generously. You have to wrestle with this. We have to do it thoughtfully. C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity, he says this, I don't believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. Don't you? Li- I just like that. Give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. Now, if we're spending according to the Joneses, we're giving too little. Is what he says. If I'm judging my spending based upon how everybody else does, I'm probably giving too little. If our charities do not pinch at all or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures exclude them. That's sobering. I almost didn't want to read that. Oh, That's tough. So he's saying, give thoughtfully. Okay, second is this, give freely. Give freely. So I give thoughtfully and then I give freely. Now, all that first stuff, that sounds like wrestling, doesn't it? It sounds like, you know, I don't want I want I want, 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 give, and I'm fighting it. And now I'm going to give freely? That's exactly what he says. So you have to come to the place where you're going to say, I'd rather be able to be generous with what I have than to continually fight all the time about keeping up with the Joneses, but I'm going to choose generosity because that's the way God's called me to. That's all in point one. So now, whew, We're free. I'm not going to say you'll never have to wrestle again. It'll be a lifelong thing. You'll still wrestle, but now we can give freely. Here's what he says. Verse eight, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, you might underline that, all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every. Paul's really laying it on heavy here, right? He's saying that once you decide that you're going to be a generous giver, this is how things will work in your life. As it is written, they have freely, underline that, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. By the way, that's Psalm 112.9. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. And then this, you will be enriched in every way. So that you can be generous on every occasion. He's not talking just about money here. He's talking about all the ways that you'll be enriched, so that you can be generous wherever you go on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Now, I, I just I believe that most of us would say that we agree to the statement, that we'd agree to we that we're going to say we trust God to provide for us, and so. Uh, when it comes to this idea, when every time we give, we're giving affirmation to what's written on our dollar bill. Uh, I I think it's on all currency and even on our coins. And uh, a phrase on the back that's still allowed in our post-Christian culture, uh, on the back, it says, in God we trust. And so when I give... Now, today's culture, we don't typically give cash. Uh, when we give, we give through check and even less than that. It's more and more through credit card or online giving, other ways that we can give, electronic giving. And so we don't see this when we give it. But it says on the back, it says, in God we trust. And so what we're saying when we give this is here's what we're saying. I don't trust this. I don't trust in this. My hope is not in this. This is not going to satisfy me. This is not going to bring me contentment. And so when I give this freely, I'm saying, in God, I trust. In God, I place my hope. In God, I lean. So generous people have learned to trust God with their resources. I just, I don't know, but I found this to be one of my biggest dilemma when it came to giving, when it came to being generous when I was younger. And it came to this idea, do I trust God enough to give away the money and the resources that I've earned, that I've gained, when really he's given me the ability to earn that in the first place, he's placed me in a place where I can earn money, where I can have an income am I going to trust God or am I going to trust myself? See, if everything comes from God, if it's all a gift from him, do I trust him enough to make what I have left after I give enough? That's really the answer. If I give, am I going to trust him to make what's left enough? And the answer, according to the Bible, is yes, he will. That's how he works. And then you'll be able to give freely when you did that, when you do that. And that leads us to our last idea. And the last idea is to give gratefully, to give gratefully. So we give not out of duty, but we give out of gratitude. Now, some of you, you're, you know, when I said earlier that come to talks like this, that you can get, you know, squirmy and uh, you feel like the pressure's being put on. Please, I'm not, that's not my goal today. And so I'm not saying that we give out a duty. Remember, we said that this series is not about boxes we check so that we can earn favor with God. They're about ways we can engage to grow in intimacy with God. And that's one of the ways is through our giving. So I grow in that, out of gratitude for what God has done, and that's going to lead us into this time of communion where we're going to be able to come together and show gratitude to him for what he did for us on the cross. So this is what Paul says in verses 12 through 15. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also, notice this, overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. He said, everybody's noticing. Everybody's noticing what's going on. Because of the service by which you approved yourselves, others will praise God. Others are going to end up coming to know God and giving their lives to him, and they're going to praise God. For the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. So why are they giving? The giving is a confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for your generosity in sharing with them and everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Thanks be to God. So the indescribable gift there that Paul is referring to is the gift of grace and mercy... That God gave us when He gave us His Son, Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, and that meant He went to the cross for us. He shows us His grace and His mercy and love when Jesus went to the cross. And it's in view of that reality that I was given the best gift ever that I can then move into a place where God's calling me not to give him everything, but to give him something, to give him some of what he's given me. And I do it because of gratitude for what he's done. When we're saying, thanks be to God, when we give, we're saying, thanks be to you, God, for your indescribable gift. And that's our motivation for generosity, folks. See, we know we've received what we could never deserve or earn freely, and that's salvation or freedom, or forgiveness, or healing from God. And that inspires us, and that motivates us. We experience happiness when we give because we've received more than we expected from him. But because we received more than we've expected, more than we've ever dreamed, we're able to give in that way. So, Duncan, you're back on Pro 6 today, and there's a slide that's not in order that's at the very end. And it's a slide by... Dr. Emmons from UC Davis, a couple of slides there, and a picture, I believe, of him, and I want to read that. You got it? Thumbs up. Great. So here's what, leading researcher on joy, happiness, and generosity from UC Davis, this is what he says. The key to happiness is to believe I deserve nothing. Do we live in a what kind of society? Entitled, right? Entitled. It's all about entitlement. It's all about what I'm entitled to have. And many of us, we carry that same burden. If I go around thinking that life owes me something, or people owe me something, or God owes me something, you will certainly not feel grateful or happy because inside, after all, you what? You deserve it. So why would I be happy? I deserve this because I'm entitled to have it. Happy, grateful people are the ones who believe life owes me nothing. All the good I have is a gift. My very eyes are a gift. So is my spouse, my freedom, my job, my every breath are all gifts given to me by God. And we live with this kind of mentality. Instead of an entitlement mentality, we live with the kind of mentality that says that I don't deserve anything, I deserve nothing. And then when I receive, then I receive beyond anything I could have ever imagined, because I reserve nothing. And so now I'm going to give out of gratitude, back to the one, and God makes all things come to us. He's the, he's the source of all things I give to him. And especially when it comes to communion. So I'm going to ask our ushers if they start moving into place. And I want us to look at this version this verse from 2 Corinthians 8:9. And 2 Corinthians 8 9 talks about this. It says, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. I think that this is a memory verse. This is a memory verse. You know the generous grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, he has everything, yet for his, your sakes he gave it all away, and he became poor so that by his poverty, he could make us rich. And that's what God's called us to do, folks. He's called us who are rich, and we are the top 2% of the world. He's called those of us who are rich in this world to be generous with what we have, to give it away. And some of us think just any giving away means we're going to be poor, but that's not the truth, that we're going to give it away. And then as we give away, others can be made rich. So, ushers, if you'll move into place, that'd be wonderful. And so, if you'll just be there and wait just a minute, and we'll talk through how we're going to be able to uh, serve communion. And so, when we come to this today, I just want us to be thinking about this. So, we, who are undeserving, are the recipients of God's indescribable gift of generous grace. God is our example of what it means to be a generous giver. Jesus, though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor so that by his poverty, he could make you rich. And we're not talking about financial richness here. We're talking about heavenly richness here. God lavished his grace on you, though you were undeserving. Jesus left his throne and became poor so that you could be rich in every way. And communion is a time to remember the gift that Jesus gave us. So our ushers are going to pass the, the plates by, and I'm going to ask you to take a piece of the bread and a cup of the juice. I'm going to ask you to hold on to that And after we're all served and we're going to be able to have communion together and experience it uh, as a family, just a moment, we're going to listen to an awesome song that calls us to remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. to Jesus, we thank you so much for what you gave for us. And as we come before you now to be able to have communion together, I pray that um, this would be a holy moment. It's an act of worship for us. As Lindsay just sang, hallelujah, give you all the glory. As we remember, we thank you for your gift to us, and your generosity. You, you had everything, everything in heaven. And you gave that away to come to be poor for us, that we might become rich. So we thank you now that you gave your body. And you gave your body that would be broken. You would take our punishment upon yourself. And so as we eat this, we say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for this juice that represents your blood that was shed for us. Can not imagine the value of that blood that you gave for us, for each one of us? The grace we experience, the mercy that we know, the resources that we have, the joy we can share with one another. So Jesus, as we drink this, we thank you. God penetrate our hearts now that this communion on February 3rd, 2019 will be one that forever changes the way we look at our resources. That you've given us, you've made us rich. Rich with your spirit, rich with friendships, rich with relationships, with finances health time with gifts will you show us how we can be more generous I pray that just like in the second century that followers of Jesus who live out of a generous spirit that that's who we would be and we would influence our culture just as our brothers and sisters did then And we thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.